This morning we're going we're gonna to do a message uh, out of Matthew chapter 11. So if you have Matthew, or if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 25 to 30, six verses at the end of Matthew. And uh, it's, it's a message entitled simply, Rest uh, for the Weary. Uh, and uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I think life, life is heavy these days for a host of reasons, right? Uh, I mean, just, just heavy. There's just a lot of things weighing us down. And so my prayer for us as the body of Christ is that you would, you would, these words would breathe life into you, that you would hear today from the word of God, you would, you would hear and receive and the invitation that Jesus is going to give us in this passage, that you would know it, that you would understand it. And so I should have had you stay standing, but stand with me as we read these six verses um, in Matthew chapter 11, we stand just to honor God, to honor his word, because it's his word that matters. It comes to us with full authority. Hear the word of God this morning. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, would you just please um, allow these words to wash over our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we, we might be refreshed, renewed, and restored, that, that you would bring relief to our weary hearts. You would bring restoration to our grieving hearts that you would cause us today to simply come to you and find rest for our weary souls. And so, Father, would you please um, encourage and strengthen your people today. And we pray it in your name. Amen. You can be seated. I want to just begin this morning. We're going we're gonna to land in this passage, but I want to just begin this morning uh, in just reciting the gospel to you, taking you on a trip throughout scripture just for a moment, and just allow this, this big picture of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to just settle in your hearts. That this, this good news that I'm going to walk us through today is for the unbeliever that might be among us, the person who's maybe stepped in here today, or maybe you're in here and you're questioning, and you're wondering, is this really matter? Is it really true? Is it really important? And so it's for the unbeliever here today, but it's also for you who believe. For every one of us today who've trusted in Christ and believed the truth and the good news of the gospel, we need, we need that same gospel to sustain us and to encourage us and to strengthen us, to be the foundation of our life, that we have no other hope except for this good news of Jesus Christ. And so I'm just going to walk us through scripture for a moment. And this, this good news that I'm about to share provides the foundation for which Jesus is going to proclaim this message to us today. And so listen to the gospel 
Hear the words of scripture. You see, the Bible, the Bible emphatically just proclaims at the very beginning in Genesis chapter one, verse one, the Bible doesn't give an explanation. It just simply proclaims it as true. And it says that there is a God. In the beginning, God. He was already there in the beginning. He's existed in all of eternity. He never, there's never a time in which God did not exist. It just simply says, in the beginning, God was already there. And he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He created everything, including us. Isaiah chapter 40 tells us about this God and says that this God is unimaginably powerful. Deuteronomy 32 says that he is a faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he, that he is completely and totally and overwhelmingly awesome in all of his perfections. He does no wrong, he's holy and just just and right in everything. Isaiah 63 says that and recounts to us the fact that our God is so good to us. It says that he is unbelievably good and merciful in sustaining our lives. The Bible tells us that every single breath, we just sang it, every breath that we breathe here today and every function of every single organ in our body that our body performs, all of it we owe to God. That every joy that you experience, every legitimate joy that you experience, every legitimate pleasure that you ever experience, the Bible says in James 1 that every good gift comes down from our Father of lights who does not change like the shifting sand. Our lives are completely and totally dependent on him for everything. And therefore the Psalms declare over and over and over again that our God is the most supremely worthy object of our worship. That there is no one who deserves all of our praise and all of our worship like God. Isaiah 43, in fact, says that God created us with the intention that we would glorify him and that we would find our soul's delight in him and him alone who created us. That we would live in joyful obedience to him in everything and find our true joy. But in spite of all of God's goodness, in spite of all that God has done for us, we find this in Genesis chapter three and we experience it in our own lives. We we have completely and totally failed our God. The Bible declares that every one of us have sinned. Every one of us falls short of his glory. Every one of us has decided instead of giving God thanks, we've rebelled against him. Instead of in humility exalting him and honoring him, we have sought to exalt ourselves and honor ourselves above him. Isn't this what Genesis 3 tells us about Adam and Eve? They decided that they knew better. They put put their own idea about life above God's. They chose to to rebel against him and turn against him. And every single one of us in this room have made the same choice more than once over and over again. And therefore, even though God has blessed us and taken care of us and sustains every function of your body this morning, you and I, in our sinfulness, have completely rejected him. And the Bible says that because of this and in that state, in Ephesians 1, it simply says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once lived following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and among whom we all 
once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body, which is another way of just saying we pursued our own things. We, we went after what we thought was right, what we saw was right in our own eyes. And because of this, we stand before a holy, righteous, and just God, and Paul says that we were by nature objects of God's wrath. We deserve nothing but punishment. The only thing we deserve is God's holy, righteous wrath. In fact, the Bible says this is how completely corrupt sin has made us. In Romans 8, verses 7 and 8, it says that the mind of sinful man is hostile to God. It does not submit to God, nor will it do so. In other words, as sinners outside of Christ, outside of this good news, as sinners, not only can we not save ourselves, we will not save ourselves. We won't do it. We are unable and we are unwilling, the Bible says. And so hear the good news. The good news is, is that what we were unable to do, God did it. God did it for you. What we were unable and unwilling to do, God did by sending his own son to live the life that you and I did not live. To die a death on the cross for sin that you and I could not die. And to be resurrected from the dead that we might have eternal life. Those who have faith in him. The words of Romans 5, 8 could not be more beautiful. Where it says that God demonstrates his unfathomable love to us in this. That while we were still sinners, that is while we were rebelling, while we were pursuing our own things, our own desires, our own passions of our flesh, while we were in that state, not after you fixed up your life, not after you got your act together, no, as a sinner rebelling against God, God sends his very own son it says he demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is no love more significant than that. As John tells us, right? Greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for a friend. This is what God did for us, that we might have life, that we might be given new life in him. That makes John 3.16, that beautiful verse that we all know, it makes it all the more beautiful, right? That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, whosoever of us and all across this world, whosoever believes in him, in Christ, will have eternal life, will not perish, but instead have eternal life. That's the good news of the gospel. Have you believed that today? Do you believe in that gospel? I love what C.S. Lewis says in light of this. C.S. Lewis says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel to us, it would seem that our Lord would find our desires not too strong, but more often too weak for him. We are half-hearted creatures at times. He says, fooling around, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is being offered to us. We're like an ignorant child sometimes who wants to go about making mud pies in the sandbox because he cannot imagine what a holiday at the beach would be like. 
Let us not find our desires to be too weak, but let us pursue all that God has for us. It's this reality, this good news of the gospel, what God has done on behalf of sinners like us, that provides the foundation for Matthew chapter 11. This is the foundation of the invitation that Jesus is inviting us into. He's inviting us into a a new kingdom, a different way of life, a different way of thinking. He's inviting us into having a whole new nature, a whole new heart. There's the kingdom of this world, and then there's God's kingdom. And in Jesus' day, in Matthew chapter 11, he's announcing the kingdom of God is at hand. It's come. It's crashing in to this dark and sinful and restless kingdom that's here. But interestingly, no one wanted it. (laughs) The the backdrop to these six verses that we're going to look at gives us a very dismal picture of the kingdom of God that Jesus is announcing. Jesus has come. He's been preaching the gospel. He's been announcing the kingdom, calling people to repent. And here's been the response. Let me just give you the background of this before we dive into this text. There are three reactions to Jesus' ministry up to this point in Matthew chapter 11. The first part of this chapter points out these three things. The first one is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the, the, the one who's the forerunner of Jesus, who was to, sent, who was in fulfillment to the Old Testament prophecies. He was sent to be the forerunner, to prepare the way of the Lord. Even John the Baptist is not sure at this point. He's He's doubting and questioning whether or not Jesus, this Jesus, really is the Messiah or not. And so he sends his disciples to to Jesus to ask, are are you the one? Are you you for sure? Now just imagine if you read all the 11 chapters up to this point, all that Jesus has already done. John's the one who baptized him for heaven's sake and heard the voice from heaven speak and say, this is my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased, right? John heard these words and yet John is still doubting whether or not this is really the Messiah. And Jesus sends the disciples back with Isaiah chapter 8, the words of the prophet that are words that were spoken about what the Messiah would be like. That, that the, the blind would receive sight, that the lame would walk, right? And so, so John is still doubting. That's one thing. So John has to have it confirmed that this really is the Messiah. The, the crowds in chapter 11, the crowds have all kinds of excuses about why they've rejected this message. In fact, they, they rejected John. It says John came, neither eating or drinking, and they, they said he had a demon, right? John was this crude guy who went about eating locusts and honey. That's a great steady diet, right? <laughs> so, so, but they rejected John's ministry and said he had a demon. That was their excuse of how they could dismiss him, right? I mean, if you don't like your enemies, then you just make up bad things about them, right? So they, so they dismissed John the Baptist. He's got a demon. But then when Jesus comes, he comes eating and drinking, and they call him a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of sinners and tax collectors. By the way, a title of being friends of sinners and tax collectors that Jesus would have welcomed. <laughs> and, so, and so they dismiss him because they say he's a drunkard. He's eating and drinking and going to weddings and doing, doing all these things. They dismiss him. So they have all these excuses, right? Excuses that all of us come up with too. Excuses that the world, they, they're, they're literally rejecting the message because, well, for this reason or for that reason, they just come up with reasons why they don't believe it. And then there's the cities. Right before our passage, Jesus is giving a woe 
to the cities, pronouncing judgment. He said, he's been in all of these cities performing miracles. They've seen it with their own eyes. And yet, he says that these cities have completely rejected him. Imagine that they've seen him do exactly what Isaiah 8 says. The lame are seeing, the the blind are seeing, and the lame are walking. People are being raised from the dead. And he says, woe to those cities who've seen with their own eyes, and yet they still reject the message. So, by every measurement, by every single count, Jesus' ministry at this point was an absolute abysmal failure, right? I mean, there's, this, isn't very, this isn't a very good missionary report, right? Jesus standing before the church saying, well, um, you know, my own people aren't really uh, accepting me. Um, everybody has a reason. They think I'm a drunkard and a glutton. And uh, I hang out with tax collectors and sinners. And all the cities who've seen me do really crazy, miraculous things that only God can do, they haven't accepted me either. Right? That's a great report. But what is Jesus' response? How does he react? He's not, he's not freaked out. He's not concerned in the least. Instead, he turns to the Father in prayer. Listen to the words of this prayer. He he turns to the Father in verse 25. First thing he does is he thanks his Father. That alone confronts my life and probably many of us. Everything seems to not be going well. Everyone seems to be rejecting him, even his own people. Even John the Baptist is not real sure. And yet Jesus' response, his reaction is he turns in prayer and the first thing he says is, thank you, Father. He thanks the Father. What does he thank the Father for? Verse 25. He first of all thanks the Father and in his prayer he declares who his Father is. He says, thank you, Father, for you are the Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, he acknowledges God, his Father, rules everything. He's in charge. He's on the throne. We just sang about that, right? He's on the throne. He is sovereign. He's in control. And that's why Jesus is not freaking out. Because he acknowledges and thanks his Father that his Father is the Lord of heaven and earth. And thirdly, not only that, he thanks him for who he is. He thanks the Father for his wisdom and redemption. This is is an incredible part of this passage. He thanks the Father for his wisdom in saving people under, on God's terms, on his terms. Notice he says, he says, I thank you, uh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. And who's he revealed them to? I've revealed them to little children. Now he's not literally, I mean, it, they would be included in this, but he's not literally talking about little children. He's talking about you and me. He's talking about everyone who receives this good news of the kingdom of God, every one of those people receive it like a child. Or in Matthew 18 and Luke 18 and Mark 10, he says, if you don't receive me like a child, then you don't receive me at all. Isn't that incredible? How does a child, how does a child respond to his parents? I mean, just think about the imagery. We've, you've heard this before, but you know, I think about, I was thinking this morning as I was walking around the parking lot praying about this, um, Jaden, when he was little, 
right there. I'll talk about him since he's older now. When he was little, about four years old or so, we had a, we had a play set out in our backyard. It was a fort. And it had a slipper slide, you know, and there was about a six foot, there's a, right beside the slide was this little opening, and it had no steps, it was just opening, and, you know, you could launch out of there or whatever. And so when he was little, I would go out to that thing, and I just simply, I would, I would say jump, you know, and no hesitation, he just launched out of there. Like, sometimes I had to be ready. If you were going to just walk out, he may just jump and assume that I'm going to catch him. And thankfully, I did each time. I don't think I dropped him on his head, but... I don't know. But that absolute abandon, that sense of total trust, no question whatsoever, just simply realizing that, that he can completely trust me as his father. He could jump out of there and he knew I was going to catch him. There was no question. He didn't have to sit and think about it in his mind and wonder whether or not he had this sense of absolute confidence and trust and he just threw himself at me. That's the way in which we are to come to God. That's the way he says, he says like little children. And there's this amazing passage too in, in this passage where he says, he says, you have not revealed yourself. Listen to who God has not revealed himself to. He does not reveal himself to the wise and the understanding. Now, does that seem weird to you? Don't you think like we go, well, we should be wise and we should have understanding. But the way, that, the way he's talking about this, he's saying he does not reveal him to those, to, to people who think they have it all figured out to the wise of this world. Let, let, me, let me help you wrestle with this a little bit further. In 1 Corinthians, one of my favorite texts about this, he says this about the gospel. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he says, for the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So this message of the cross seems ludicrous to those who are perishing, to those who are not being saved. It seems ridiculous to this world. If you don't think so, take to the streets this afternoon and just begin to share about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and call people to believe in it or perish. <laughs> See how that goes, right? The word of the cross seems foolish to this world, to those who are perishing. But listen to this, but to us who are being saved, to you who believe, it's the power of God. But listen to this. For it is written, Paul says, I will destroy, God's saying this, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. What is, what is God saying in Isaiah when he says that? I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'm going to thwart the discernment of the discerning. What God is saying is you don't come to me on your terms. You come to God on his terms. You don't, get to, you don't get to come to God because you have it figured out. You have the answers. Those who come to God who think they have it figured out don't have anything figured out. Because we don't get to come. The world doesn't get to come to God on their terms, in their way, under their understanding. Because if you did get to come that way, then you could boast all day long, right? I could go to my neighbor who doesn't know Jesus and I could be like, I'm smarter than you. I've got it figured out. I'm smart enough to figure out the code. I cracked the code. I love these books that Christians write about. We cracked the code of the Bible. There's no code. God has revealed himself, right? He's made himself known. He's not hiding something, right? But if you're one of those who think you have it all figured out, he's not revealing it to you. You wouldn't see it if he did. 
You see, the interesting thing is, is that the world around us is in total need. You just look at on the streets, look at the stuff going on, all the chaos. Everyone is in need of answers. They want something. They want this wonderful utopia. But what do they want it on? They want it on their terms. They want it in their way. Ironically, we all have different terms, right? We all have different understandings. We want it to be on my terms. I want to live in this wonderful world. I want to have life. I want to, not, I want to live in this, this utopia world, but it's going to be on my terms. And God says, well, that's not the way it works. He's the one who announces the terms. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. But how did they know God? I love this. For it pleased God through the folly, foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. It doesn't mean that the message of the cross is foolish. It means that to those who are perishing, it's foolish. But the message of the cross is our salvation. It's through the simplicity of Christ crucified that we are saved. And that's why Jesus is looking to the Father saying, Father, you're wise. You're so wise. You're wise. You, you're wise in the way in which you save people. And all of those who are like little children come to you. They, they are saved. And he, says, and he says, this is your gracious will, God. This is your gracious will. Right? And then Jesus, lastly, in this little response of his, this prayer, he says, uh, he thanks the Father for his place in redemption, for who he is, for how the Father has sent him and his place in redemption. He says, all things have been handed over to be me by my Father. You hear the words of the Great Commission in Matthew 28? All authority has been given to me, right? Therefore, go and make disciples. It's, it's happened already right here. He says, all things, all things have been given over to me by my Father. The Father, uh, someone has asked me this, I was like, the Father is the one who directs redemption history. The Son is the one who accomplishes that, his, that, that redemption. And the Spirit is the one who applies it to our lives. And so Jesus is, is simply acknowledging his place in redemption, that all authority has been given to him. He acknowledges the unique relationship. Listen to these words. This is such good news. He says, no one, it's all been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and. Do you see that there? There's an and there. It's the most beautiful and I've ever seen in a passage because what he's saying is, this unique Trinitarian relationship that the Father and the Son have, it's not exclusive just to them. Who else gets to enjoy this unique relationship? He says, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Right? Those who are saved, us who believe, whom Jesus has revealed the Father to us. All who believe, all who've, who've had this revealed and who believe in Christ, everyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him to, we too are joined into this Trinitarian relationship. Isn't that like the mystery and the, the, the mind-blowing thing of all of history right there? The fact that the Father knows the Son, the Son knows the Father, and we get invited into that unbelievable relationship. It, it's mind-blowing to think about that. We see here that salvation 
is an act of God's sovereign and gracious will. That there's not a person in this room who deserves God's favor. And yet, God has given it to you. God has placed his favor upon you. Not because you deserve it, but because he has chosen to bless you. Isn't that crazy? That's why there's no boasting in the kingdom of God. That's why arrogance and pride, pumping out the chest, acting as though we're better than one another, that's why none of that stuff is, is, that is anti-God, anti-gospel. It doesn't belong anywhere in the kingdom of God. All of us should be humble before God and just blown away that he would love us at all. Well, this prayer forms the foundation for Jesus' invitation then, which is the closing of this passage. Jesus says, in light of this reality that I've just shared with you, in light of God's wisdom, in light of who he is, in light of God's wisdom, in light of Jesus' place in redeeming us, he says, come to me. Just hear and receive the invitation today. Come to me. Come to me. The Bible declares that Jesus is the only way and the truth and the life and that no one gets to the Father except through him. And Jesus is simply coming. In fact, if Jesus truly loves us, right, he will give us what will satisfy and bless our lives for all of eternity. And what can he give other than himself? And so he says, come to me. Come to Jesus. All the things that you're pursuing, all the things that are being pursued in our world right now, all the, all the salvations, right? All the ways in which people think they can be saved. If we just do this, if we just vote this person in or vote that person out, if we just believe this or do this, if we just, if we just have this type of income level or not income level, all these, all these redemptive things that people are longing for will come to nothing outside of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, come to me. And who's the invitation to? It's to the weary and the burdened. The weary and the burdened. What are people weary and burdened about? Is he just talking about when you're tired, like you didn't get enough sleep last night, maybe you had a long work week? It's bigger than that. And the reason why is because of the next point, but we'll get there in a minute. What are we weary and burdened about? I think in Jesus' day, one of the things that he's speaking to is the religious Pharisees, the Jews, who were all about a religion of do and don't, do and don't. If you just do enough, if, if, you, can, if you can be zealous enough, if you can be, you know, you know, have enough zeal for God and do the right things and don't do the wrong things, then you're going to be okay with God. There was, there was just a weariness of religious activity. But I think the weariness and the burden is also a result of sin. Sin weighs down your life and my life. The Bible says that our own sin, my personal sin, even destroys my health. The psalmist declares this many times in Psalm 33, where, in Psalm 32, where he talks about the fact that, that his bones were wasting away, he couldn't sleep, his tears become his food. And then he says, and then I confessed my sin. <laughs> and then I was able to sleep. My health was restored. Right? Sin weighs us down and burdens us, but it's not just our own sin. You and I can attest to this right now today, at least I feel it in my life, the sin that has influenced and impacted and infiltrated every aspect of this world weighs us down as well. Not just our own sin, but the effects of sin 
And we can feel this in our world, right? You just watch the news for five minutes and your heart is just heavy and you feel the sense of burden and weight of just the, the junk of this world and the chaos and the lack of perspective and the lack of anything. It's mind-blowing. It weighs us down. It affects our own life and it affects people around us. It destroys everything. Jesus says, to the weary and the burdened, to those who are weary and burdened, come Come to me. And what is the invitation to? To find rest. Come to me all who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. Doesn't that sound great? Are you restful this morning? And again, I'm not talking about, and I don't think Jesus is talking about either, simply a good night's rest. Because in a moment, in another verse, he's going to say, find rest for your souls. You see, everything could be all right around you. The world could not be burning to the ground right now. There could be no coronavirus. There could be no riots in the streets. There could be none of that stuff. In fact, your 401k could be plush. You, your third lake house could be beautiful. You could be sitting in it right now. You could be having a great time of your life and all your kids are doing really well and everything's in order and your car's really sweet and all this stuff is going really good and you could be the most miserable person on the face of the earth. Because the rest that he's talking about here is something far deeper than circumstantial things, than material things outside of you. He's talking about rest that can only come, true rest that can come from having a heart that is at peace with God. That's where true rest comes from. In fact, this theme of rest is a massive theme in the Bible. If you go to Hebrews 4, you don't have to go there now, but just later on, if you go to Hebrews chapter 4 and read the first part of that chapter and the end of chapter 3, it tells us that the Sabbath rest in the Old Testament, what the Sabbath rest ultimately becomes about in light of Jesus coming, is that the Sabbath rest was this shadow that pointed us to a rest that would come in Jesus that would be completely satisfying. You see, the Old Testament Sabbath was not totally satisfying. Just by taking a day off, your soul isn't necessarily right, right? I mean, it's helpful, it's good, but that rest, Hebrews chapter 4 tells us, had a bigger reality that come to be fulfilled in Jesus. That, that in Christ, we would have a rest that would be an eternal rest, it would be the ultimate resting place. And one day when Jesus returns and obliterates all sin and all chaos and everything is made right and we get to be with him forever and ever, that is the final rest. That's what rest means, that, that our true rest is found in Christ. Do you know Christ? Then you are experiencing more and more and more of this type of rest. See, that's the rest. That he's, it's, a, it's salvation that he's talking about here. Come to me and you will find rest for your soul. Your soul will be satisfied. You could be at absolute peace with God and all hell could literally be breaking loose around you. And yet you could be at rest. You could be at peace. Amen? I, I pray today that we have, that we are, we are clinging for and longing for that kind of peace and rest. Because we desperately need it. We need our hope and our rest to come in Christ. But the invitation doesn't stop there. Lastly, he says the invitation is an invitation to also live like Jesus. 
He's saying, come to me and you will find rest for your souls and as you're going about your life and living your life at peace with God, live like me. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus is inviting us into, not just to simply believe in him, but he's inviting us in to live like him. He's saying, learn my way of life. You wanna, you wanna live every day in your chaotic job, in your stressful family, in your financial troubles? You wanna live every day at peace with me? You wanna know how to labor, how to work in such a way as to be at peace with God? Then learn from me, see my way of life, and emulate the way I live. And then he says this crazy verse that has made me mad most of my ministry life because it didn't make sense to me forever. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I don't know about you, but I, I seriously, I had so many times in ministry and even right now where I'm just like, my yoke is not easy and my burden doesn't feel light. It feels really sucky. It feels heavy, right? But, so what is Jesus saying? When he says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm lowly and gentle in spirit. My yoke is easy. You, you know what a yoke is, right? So we had, uh, when I preached this years ago, we had a family in our church in Hartford, South Dakota, that had a, two Pertron, black Pertron horses, if you've ever seen them, just gorgeous horses, big, huge. They look like Clydesdales, but they're black, and they're just amazing. And he had a wagon. Every Christmas, we would get on that wagon, and we would go through the city in the snow, and we would sing Christmas carols, and it, it was wonderful. Um, actually, most of the time, it was terrible, because it was about 20 below zero. It sounds like really peaceful and like wonderful. You're always like, oh, wouldn't that be great, a horse-drawn buggy going through the city? And it was, but it was usually 20 below zero in South Dakota, so we were all like dying by the time we got back to the church. But anyway, it sounded very nostalgic. And, uh, but, but he had a yoke. A yoke is this crossbar that connects these two massive horses together, and, and if you could just picture this in your mind, Jesus is using this picture of a yoke. So I lifted this up when I preached it there, but I don't know if anybody has a yoke here. So, so you could actually see this, this, this massive crossbeam that, that hooks these two horses together and hooks up to the wagon so they could pull the wagon. I think this is a great picture because Jesus says, my yoke, which is this thing of, it's for work, right? So he's not talking about just chilling out and everything's good. We don't have to do anything because God's got it, right? No, no, no. He's, he's using an example here. Life is like being yoked up to something and you're pulled like there is some work to be done. And he says, my burden is light. In other words, there's still a burden, right? There's still some work. There's still a burden there. So it's not as though we're just like, woo, everything's going to be great. No, no, no. No, we're hooked up to this yoke. But he, what he's saying is my yoke, if you're hooked up to my yoke, you're, you're, you're hitched up to Jesus, right? If you're doing life the way Jesus does life, if you're doing life in the power of God versus your own fleshly existence versus me just trying to do it myself, if I, if I have hitched myself to Christ and I'm learning from him and I'm laboring with him, then it's going to be as if it's easy. Because the Bible says that he's the one who carries ultimately our burdens. We foist them upon him. He carries them. My burden is going to be Light. I, I think one of the ways that that happens is Jesus is calling upon us to work hard, to labor hard, and to do it in the power of his spirit that lives in us, but to trust God with the results. I don't know about you, but I get, to, I get burdened down and weighed down when I'm trying to own the results. When I'm trying to make the things of God happen versus laboring in the power of the spirit and letting God work out the results. 
I think that's all many of our trouble. Right? I share the gospel with somebody and they reject it. And they're like, man, if I could have just shared it better, if I would have just done this, if I would have done that, I'm thinking, what am I doing? Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered. That's our job. Who makes it grow? God makes it grow. We plant the seeds of the gospel. We labor in the power of the gospel. We water that gospel. In other words, people come along after I share the gospel with somebody. Maybe they don't accept it at all, but somebody else comes along and they, they share the gospel gently with that same person. They're throwing some water on the seeds that are already planted. And at some point in history, like for me, like for you, at some point, God makes it grow. The results are up to God. And we can labor and do a lot if we would just trust God with the results. This is why Jesus can sit here and have no success, what seems to be completely a failure, but he's not concerned at all. God's got this. God is wise. He knows exactly what he's doing. Trust him. And that's way easier than said than done. We have to come back to this passage, come back to this invitation, and simply come to Jesus, find rest for our souls, and trust in Jesus for everything in our lives to find ourselves hitched up to him. I, I think you can tell what it looks like to labor when you're yoked to Christ versus laboring under your own strength. You know what that's like, right? You ever been depressed? <laughs> you ever been discouraged? You ever felt like life is so heavy you can't go on? Some people feel like life is so heavy they can't go on. It's so bad that they even take their own life because it doesn't seem worth it because every weight of every sin of everything in their life is upon their own shoulders. And there's no hope in that. Jesus is saying, come with me. Come to me. Hitch yourself up to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I pray, I pray today that you will accept that invitation from Jesus, that you will come to him, that you will find rest for your soul, a rest that only he can provide, amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you for this great invitation. We thank you, God, for your, your mercy to us that's seen in Christ, in Christ alone. And so, Father, would you, would you just simply cause us, like little children, even just to hear these words as if for the first time, just like a little child hearing, hearing the good news that we get to go to the pool today, <laughs> that we would be so joyful, so excited, and so trusting that we would, we would throw ourselves at your mercy. We would place the full weight of our lives in your hands. That we would live life with you. And that you would do great things as you see fit. Not as I see fit. Not what I want. But God, what you want. For this is your gracious will, Father. And we pray it in your name. Amen.